just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practices because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. All right, podcast family, let me know if this happens to you as well. I mean, I'm sure it does, right? I mean, we're all in women's health care. So do people come up to you randomly outside of work environments and just open up about their gynecology issues? Or does that just happen to me? Do I have that kind of face? Because it just happened over this Christmas break. I mean, I'm so thankful to have Christmas Day off and I'm spending it with family. And of course, almost by default, somebody comes up to me and says, hey, Hector, just wanted to let you know I had a great visit with my gynecologist. Um, FYI, I'm really not interested and don't care. But anyway, she continued. Well, anyway, I was going to get my tubes tied, but then my gynecologist told me I should really get an IUD because they're really all the same anyway. So I said, they're all the same in, in what regard? Well, then she said, well, my gynecologist said that they're all the same and they work just like getting my tubes tied. Then I asked, of course, the next logical question, well, which IUD did they discuss with you? And this is what really struck me. She said, wait, there's more than one kind? Oh, my goodness. What is going on here? So, of course, I had to go into full doctor mode with the two words that I usually start something off. Well, actually, yeah. And I had to stop there for a minute because my my daughter, my teenage daughter is a big fan of the TV show, The Office. Don't judge me. Yes, I let her watch The Office. But anyway, if you're not familiar with the show, there's a character in The Office named Oscar. And Oscar is known as the, quote, well, actually, end quote, guy. Because every time somebody says something, he has to say, well, actually, and then corrects them. Well, that was my, well, actually, moment. Because it's so unfair to group all IUDs together, and it's even more unfair to group all LARCs together. Now, I understand what her gynecologist was trying to say, and she probably, or he, was probably short on time. But saying that they're all the same is really a great disservice to the patient and to the specific kinds of IUDs. So I thought, again, that's a great podcast session. So in this session, we're going to discuss some key issues on female sterilization and get into this issue of LARCs because we've always heard people say, well, they're just as effective. But the truth is, while that is true as a category, the effectiveness of the different kinds of LARCs are actually pretty different. And one LARC in particular stands out vastly above the rest. No, this isn't a plug or a paid sponsorship for this kind of contraceptive device. But the truth is, there's one kind of LARC that's even better than female sterilization, according to the college. Ready? Let's get into that now. Before we get into the specific kind of LARCs, and remember that the college defines long-acting reversible contraceptive options as really only two main families. They're either intrauterine devices, or if they have medication, intrauterine systems, so IUDs or IUSs, or it's the implant, which right now there's only one, which is the eastern or gestural implant or nexplanon, and that's it. So the IUDs or IUS family or the implant or nexplanon. Those are the kinds of LARCs. And we're going to get into that specifically in terms of their efficacy in just a minute. 
But a quick word about sterilization, because some of you may not know this. Um, now, I definitely wasn't practicing in the 70s. I'm very thankful to say I was born in the 70s. So I wasn't a physician then because I'm not old. I'm not claiming that. OK, but I do know the history of sterilization and listen to where we've been. I mean, women's health care, just like neurology has got weird stuff in it. Gynecology has weird stuff in its history as well. But it was true that up until the 1970s, okay, OBGYNs could not perform an elective sterilization procedure on a woman unless her age multiplied by her parity equaled 120 or more. Is that wild or what? Again, just until up until the 1970s, the formula by professional organizations that, quote, quote, allowed a woman to be sterilized was that her age times her parity had to equal 120 or more. Also, by the way, before a woman or a wife was sterilized, her husband also had to sign the consent form. Yikes. So again, times have changed, but don't forget if you're ever asked, what was the mathematical formula about sterilization that would allow women to have sterilization? It was age times parity had to equal 120 or more. Now, for this podcast and this session, I'm talking about elective sterilization purely for birth control reasons. I'm not talking about opportunistic salpingectomy, which again can be a form of sterilization, but that has to do with prevention of ovarian cancer, specifically in high-risk situations. And I don't want to get into that now. We've talked about that in other podcasts. But for purposes of this session, I'm talking about permanent sterilization, whether it's tubal occlusion or partial salpingectomy uh, or whatever other method you choose, electrodesiccation with cautery. I'm talking about just birth control, not opportunistic salpingectomy. I just wanted to make that clear. According to the college, sterilization is the most common method of contraception among married couples. However, LARCs is honestly a valuable alternative and is part of the informed consent process in any patient who's thinking about getting sterilization. We've got to talk about alternatives to that procedure. Contemporary LARC methods, remember, intrauterine devices or intrauterine systems and implants have efficacy that's comparable with and one has even slightly higher efficacy than female sterilization. So they are valid alternatives. However, we can't just focus on the female here because the truth is compared with male sterilization, most methods of female sterilization are actually less effective and they carry more risk. So I've got to say that again. Yep, we've got to send the dude. <laughs> go have him go talk to his urologist or family practice provider who can do an office-based vasectomy. So it's not just getting their tubes tied or tubes occluded and that's it. Because according to the college and the CDC, compared with male sterilization, once again, quote, most methods of female sterilization are less effective, more costly, and carry more risk, end quote. 
Now, myths and misperceptions of both of these procedures, either female or male sterilization, persist in the community. Now, it's more entrenched in certain ethnic groups. I'm telling you, I have a predominantly lower socioeconomic patient base, primarily Hispanic, African-American, although we have Asian, of course, Native American, we've got Caucasian, we've got everybody, but predominantly it's Hispanic and African-American, lower socioeconomic. That's just my patient base. And I've heard every kind of weird story out there. I've heard female patients come in and say, look, I can't get my tubes tied because uh, my great-grandmother or my grandmother told me that I was going to go nuts or I was going to go through menopause. Uh, Well, actually, both of those are no. Uh, And then I've heard some weird stuff from the male partners as well when they say, oh, no, I can't get a vasectomy because then I'm not going to be able to to get an erection. Uh, What? No, that's actually not true at all. So while there is myths and misperceptions on both sides, remember the truth is that there is some non-contraceptive benefits to female sterilization that are true. These are benefits, not harms, like the potential reduction in in epithelial ovarian cancer risk. We know that. There's also a reduced risk of pelvic inflammatory disease. Although it doesn't eliminate it, it greatly reduces the risk. So there is some non-contraceptive benefits, despite all the weird myths and misperceptions out there on female sterilization. But it is still a procedure, either by laparoscopy, which is the main way that it's done as an interval case, or mini laparotomy, if it's done immediately postpartum, or very rarely if laparoscopy is not available uh, after a, a spontaneous loss or after a termination, a little mini lap just above the pubic symphysis. But again, there are real risks with this minor surgical procedure, and that's why LARCs are so attractive, because it's not surgery, you avoid anesthesia, and the efficacy is comparable So having said that, as a whole, the efficacy of LARCs is comparable to female sterilization. If you really tease out the data of the individual LARCs, the actual efficacies are different. So let's get into that next. As a group, long-acting reversible contraceptives are fantastic, and their efficacy, as we've just stated, are comparable to laparoscopic sterilization. So that's a valid point. And remember that LARCs also have some other health benefits. For example, Mirena is FDA approved to treat heavy cycles. So there are some other benefits outside of just birth control. But if we're really talking about efficacy in specific, let's take a look at the copper tea. Let's take a look at Mirena. We're going to use Mirena as a surrogate for all progestin-releasing intrauterine systems, or IUSs, like Kylina or Skyla, but we'll stick with the big parent for now, okay? So copper tea, Mirena, which is levonorgestrel releasing, and then the etonorgestrel implant or Nexplanon by label, the copper tea or Paragard, is approved for 10 years of use, although we know that its efficacy probably extends to up to 12 years, and they're probably going to seek a label change for that. Remember that all that you get with the copper IUD is birth control. You don't get a reduction in periods. You don't get a reduction in pelvic cramps uh, or dysmenorrhea. All you get is really good birth control. Mirena is now FDA approved for seven years and has the extra benefit, as we've just stated, of reduced menstrual length to amenorrhea, uh, and it also reduces menstrual cramps. Remember that by label, Mirena is approved for now for seven years 
Kylina is still five years and Skyla is still three years. The Eternogestrel implant or Nexplanon is FDA approved for three years, although we know that there's enough medicine to extend for at least four years. But again, the label is three years. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, now let's talk about the efficacy, which was our original purpose of doing this. Yes, as a group, we've already said it, and we've nailed that point home, comparable to sterilization. But if you take a look at the individual failure rates of the LARCs, they're actually very different. The ACOG and the CDC state that the annual failure rate for the copper IUD is 0.8%. Again, that's remarkable and that's very good, but it's actually 0.2% for the levonorgestrel-releasing intrauterine system. So copper T is 0.8% annual failure rate, whereas the levonorgestrel-releasing intrauterine system is 0.2%. Now that number is specifically for Mirena, but there's no real reason to think that Kylina and Skyla would be any different since it's the same mechanism of action overall. So, copper T, 0.8% annual failure rate, whereas it is 0.2% for levonorgestrel-releasing intrauterine system. Ah, but here's the catch. So, listen to this, because here's a big clinical pearl, and why not all LARCs are technically the same. The annual failure rate for the eternorgestrel implant, right? That's Nexplanon. And this is according to ACOG, the CDC, and the manufacturer's own data. The annual failure rate for eternorgestrel implant is 0.05%. Again, 0.05% is the annual failure rate for eternorgestrel implant. That makes it the most effective and lowest failure rate of any contraceptive agent, whether it's reversible or permanent. All right, so I know what you're saying. Man, you're splitting hairs. I mean, they're all under 1%. Totally true. But if you're going to group them all together, it really is part of informed consent to tell the patient which has the best efficacy, hands down, that's the eternorgestrel implant at a failure rate of 0.05%. Now, I'm a big fan, actually, not of eternorgestrel just because I don't like systemic exposure. I actually like the Mirena family. I think that's a nice compromise with a failure rate that's really, really respectable. So I kind of like the Mirena, Kylene, and Skyla family because I think it's more, you know, kind of paracrine effect, less systemic absorption than something going through the entire system. But again, it's ultimately patient selection and patient preference. If a patient doesn't want any hormones at all, then maybe she's better off with the copper tea. Remember, it's all about putting all of the options and all the facts before the patient so they can decide. But grouping them all together like, oh, all larks are the same, well, that's technically not true because while all the efficacies are comparable to sterilization with a failure rate less than 1% per year, the individual rates are actually quite different. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, wait a minute. 
if, if nexplanon or etronorgestrel has that lowest failure rate. But what about obese or, or overweight women? Well, the truth is, even though no formal trial included morbidly obese women, the nexplanon or etronorgestrel label states that efficacy is maintained up to about 130% over ideal body weight. So according to the data, it does not seem that obesity affects the efficacy of the etronorgestrel implant. Well, I explained all of this to my family member, and I got the complete deer-in-the-headlights look. So I think I gave her more information than she wanted as I was eating my little slice of ham and my cranberry sauce. But she brought it up. It's all fair game, right? I think that's the last time she's going to bring up her gynecology care to me, and I'm very thankful for that. Anyway, I hope you got something out of this podcast message because it's always fun for me. I look for good educational activities anywhere. Is that weird? I know it's weird. It must be a personality disorder. But the truth is, I'm okay with it. As always, we're thankful for you. And as we come to an end of 2021, I want to tell you, I think we've got great things in store for all of us in 2022. It's got to get better. Look, it's already better from where we were in 2020. And despite Omicron and all that stuff going on, the science is moving fast. I trust medical education and I wish you and your family the best in the coming new year. Thanks for being part of our podcast family. And we'll see you soon on another episode of Clinical Pearls. Thank you.